Amen. Our God wants to be known. Our God eagerly and often reveals his very nature to us and invites us to seek him out. And that's at the heart of where we're going in this series as we consider the seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. And last week, Clayton took us back to the kind of this foundational introduction that we see in the book of Exodus between Yahweh and Moses. When as the Lord calls Moses to be a part of this liberating plan that he's enacting in the world and in all creation, he says, tell them that I am sent you, right? You want to know my name? It's I am who I am, right? And that understanding of Yahweh sustained a people and sustains us still. I had the chance to be down with a third and the fourth graders uh, last Sunday when we were talking about this text in Exodus 3. And um, it was fascinating because we were talking about, you know, what's in the meaning of a name? And I asked the room kind of how many of the kids knew what their names meant. Um, and over half the room, their hands went up. They knew the meanings of their names or they had a, maybe a familial name that had been given to them that was of importance and said something about who they are and where they come from. And I was actually struck when I was prepping for this talk how much that particular age group has been discipling me and helping me learn this week because I was also at uh, Pella Christian's third through fifth grade um, dress rehearsal for their concert this week and they were retelling the story of David and Goliath. And I had my teaching notes with me actually about John 6 and I was sitting there and listening to the song they were singing where um, they were describing Yahweh as friend and family and shepherd and king and all these names to describe who God is. And it was probably if Phoebe had seen me, it would have been awkward because I was kind of like weepy in the crowd. I was like getting emotional about the musical, um, which I do from time to time. But I was like, wow, just the, the beauty of this like earnest declaration of who God is as um, our youngest disciples are learning about I am was really powerful to me. And it made me think about how as a teacher or a preacher, and, and I love being a part of, of this team at church, but as a teacher, you know, our job is to come to a text and to open it in a way that brings greater understanding or insight. And as a preacher, the call on a preacher is to encourage and exhort in a way that says, let's not just be hearers of the word but let's be doers of the word, right? Uh, and it is an honor to do that these weeks, but I was reminded of how you know, the spirit of God is for the people of God. And we all actually encounter the revelation of who God is with one another in simple moments across all generations and backgrounds. And so um, that's why I want to make even a little space, and we throughout this series want to hear from one another about the ways that we have encountered who Jesus says he is through these seven I am statements in John's gospel. So what I want you to do is, in a minute, I'm going to say this phrase, the phrase for the week, and I want you to think, what's the word or association that you kind of first have come to your mind? All right, so our phrase for this week is bread of life. So when I say bread of life, think for a moment, what's the kind of first word or image or association that comes to you? So think for a moment. 
Okay, you got something in your mind? Don't overthink it. Just kind of first thing. Now, once you're in groups of like three to six or something, find a little cluster. And I want you to each just go around and just say, what was your word or phrase? And if you didn't have something, you could kind of blank slate. You can just say pass. That's okay. But just go around your little circle or your small group and say your word or phrase. And if you want, after you've said it, someone could share a little bit more or you could say, oh, that one was interesting. How, what do you think that means to you? You could ask someone a follow-up. Okay, so find a few people around you and share the association you had with bread of life. Go for it. Piece of bread. You're so tired. Some coffee? Bread. Are you hungry? What is yours? Okay, did everybody get to share theirs? Yeah? Okay. Um, can I just humor me? I heard some interesting ones. Um, old timey, what was yours, Chris? Old timey bread making. Old timey bread making. Old timey bread making. I was like, sourdough starters. Okay, what are a few other, like a word or phrase you heard in your group? Will someone shout one out over here? Sustenance. Sustenance. Good. I'm going to pan the room. Any from over here? Here? Fulfilled. Communion. Communion. Others. How about over here? Food. What was? Food that keeps you going. Great. How about in this section? Manna. Good. Others? The Last Supper. Eucharist. Good. Okay. So... We have these different associations when we hear the phrase bread of life. Um, when I think about just bread or bread of life, I first kind of have this maybe classic, yeah, like a bakery scene, right? Mounds of fresh baked bread. Actually, my first association is a smell when I think of bread, right? You know that smell when you walk in a bakery and you're just like, I don't even need to buy anything. I just need the smell. Can I take, you know, it's so good. Um, so I also think about like, yeah, the homemade, like this labor of love, right? Because there's a lot of steps and labor in the process. Um, the bakeries know me well. I think I lived off glazed donuts in my first pregnancy. Uh, so I, I partake regularly of the smells and the flavors. But when I think about the formative kind of associations I have around bread, it's a little bit more um, Wonder Bread and Communion Wafers. This is uh, my early association. Uh, my dad is a, was a Lutheran pastor. He's retired now. And I have this picture. We did not have real bread in communion growing up. We had these. Who, who had these wafers? Does anyone have a memory of this? Okay. So I remember my dad, you know, at the high point of communion, saying the words of institution. And, and he would hold this little styrofoam tasteless wafer up. And he'd be like, the body of Christ broken for you. And you'd hear this little like, click, like, <laughs> it's very anticlimactic. Um, so I remember like coming to third and be like, they use real bread. Like, whoa. Um, 
And so I have this strong memory of this wafer. And I, as one of the few kids in a small rural church, we were often enlisted to help like be acolytes, like candles and whatnot. And I remember my siblings and I would sometimes sneak into the back storage closet and we would take a sleeve of wafers and we would play chubby bunny with the communion wafers. <laughs> I don't recommend this for various reasons, theological and other, but like, I just remember they would like congeal and stick to the top of my mouth. And I was like, what is that? You know, so I have these memories when I hear bread of life. And I was thinking how even in the story we're going to be in, in John, the crowd and the disciples around Jesus, they would have had these really potent associations with bread and bread of life too. And some of these would have come from places long in their collective and historical memory. And some would have come from just the day before. So if you want to turn with me to John 6, we've got the page numbers. If you want to grab a Bible or follow along in your Bible app, you're welcome to do so. We're going to be in John 6. And this is the first of these I am statements that we're going to look at. Now, if you're at chapter 6, we're actually going to start our passage at verse 25, but I want to just kind of give us the context because this is going to fuel the moment. So at the beginning of 6, you'll see if you're skimming or looking that we have John's account of a mass feeding of a large crowd again. So the crowds have come. Um, John tells us it's Passover time, so maybe these are pilgrims coming or from the surrounding towns, and they don't have anything to eat. And so Jesus takes these um, three small or two small fish and five small barley loaves. Those are the details in John's telling. And he multiplies it to feed this huge crowd probably five to 10,000 people somewhere in that range. And it says there's so much that there's extra and they gather it even at the end so it's not wasted. And then John tells us in the 14th um, verse of this chapter that after the people saw the miraculous sign Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So they know they're witnessing something profound in this moment. And John's interesting detail that they, he senses that they intend to make him king. They, they plan this kind of political power move with Jesus, he withdraws. And then we have the story where Jesus is away and the disciples go across the, the lake and there's kind of this storm and he approaches them and they're afraid and, and he gets there um, and the crowds are kind of trying to track the disciples and Jesus but kind of lose, lose him in the midst of it and finally find him on the other side of the lake. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 25. So they get to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? It's funny, they're like very concerned with the logistics of like, was this time travel? How did this work? You know, they're, they're very interested in the mechanics. And Jesus kind of calls them out on this. And he says in 26, he says, Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me. But not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So right away, I love this challenge 
because Jesus seems to understand that the people are not quite understanding who he's revealing himself to be in this moment. Um, it, it is kind of like, you're actually, you miss the like spiritual, supernatural parts, yeah. You're more like, wow, he fed me. Could I get more of that, please, right? It makes me think of, um, I grew up watching like Star Trek and Star Wars and all these kind of futuristic, the Jetsons, things like that. And I remember in all of those um, great kind of classic stories that yes, the like exploration of the cosmos and new species, that was all really cool. But the things that most captured me were things like beaming down and up, right? Like that would be so convenient. Where is that technology, right? Or did anyone watch the Jetsons? I know it's a really old cartoon, but okay. So there was like Rosie the robot. And for me, I remember they'd be like, I need lunch. And all of a sudden somewhere in Rosie's magical robot innards, like a sandwich would come out. And I was like, that would be amazing, right? And it's kind of like the people in this moment are like, we know something powerful is happening, but this guy makes food out of nowhere and somehow like, travels in ways that defy the rules of the universe, and I think we could use that. Like, yeah, I want that guy on my side. And that is not really, you can hear, right? Can you hear how they're in this like materialistic, they're limited by their frame of understanding from their day-to-day -day reality. And I get it, it's compelling. Think about just the time and energy at this point in the ancient world it took to just secure food for your people, for your family. The hours of your day just to bake the bread, catch the fish. Like this would be pretty good. But Jesus is like, I have something better. And the people seem at least interested or somewhat chastised because they come back in verse 28 and say, well, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answers them, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Isn't that interesting? The work of God is to believe. The work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. And so they go, well, what sign will you give us? What miraculous sign will you give so we may see it and believe you? What will you do? This is such a funny moment because you're like, uh, I just fed 10,000 people yesterday. Remember that one? Uh, and they're like, what, do you, what will you do now? And then they go on and say, well, our ancestors ate the manna in the desert. And as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus goes, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who gave the bread from heaven. It's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So you see, this, of course, was one of their primary associations when they're talking about bread, right? And so, yes, they have this story just from yesterday. But they also have this story of the people who, wandering in the wilderness, received provision of food every day. This incredible bread. And it's captured, of course, in Exodus. And this bread called manna, which, interestingly enough, that word manna, it, it sounds like the Hebrew question, what is it? Because it's like, what is this thing? They'd never seen it before. Something that had never existed. 
Exodus says that it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Better than the communion wafers. I think they needed some honey. Um, Moses says that they're meant to take, you know, enough of it every day for what they need. But if they have, if they gather more than they need, what happens, right? It rots. They're just supposed to collect what they need each day. Two days for the Sabbath. And so this story is in their mind about this incredible manna. And the people are like, yeah, remember that? Moses did that. And I love Jesus. He's like, mm, he in that sentence was not Moses. That was my father. God gave that food for 40 years to sustain you. And they would have known that even the people of God in those formative books in their law were taught that it wasn't really about the food, right? Yes, God cared and provided for their real, physical, material needs. But Deuteronomy says that God humbled the people, causing them to hunger and then feeding them with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So they have this manna in mind. And Jesus is like, the true bread has come from the Father. And here it is. He says it straight out in 35. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And I love it. The people are like, when he talks about this bread, they're like, oh, give us this bread. And that should sound like the story in John 4 of the woman at the well who's like, ooh, this amazing water. Give me this water. He says, I'm it. Come to me. But he challenges them as he goes on because it, he says, you've seen me and you don't still believe. 37, all whom the Father give me will come and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Do you hear that invitation says, the Father is drawing you, but you come. It's the will of him who sent me that none should be lost, but all will be raised up at the last day. And so after this part of the text, it says that the crowd starts to grumble. You see that word? Grumble in 41. And that should sound familiar, right? Because what do the people do all through their wandering in the wilderness with the manna? They grumble right? We hear that echo. And Jesus just calls out. He's like, stop grumbling. Stop grumbling. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. This is 43. And I will raise them up at the last day. So he talks in this section about how the bread of life, this bread coming down from heaven is a bread that people will eat and not die. He says in 49, your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which people may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of the bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And something starts to happen here in the text, where the people start to get a little uncomfortable with what Jesus is teaching. And he keeps pressing in. They're like, Who, who's this guy? Like, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
And earlier he's talking and they're grumbling. They're like, who does this guy think he is? He says he's the bread from heaven, but he came from Joseph and Mary. We know them. This is not the kind of heavenly bread we're looking for. And so they're arguing and arguing. And Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Okay, friends, put aside your churchiness. This is weird, right? Like hear this a little bit, like hear this with, without the lens of your belief in Jesus or your long life with God or your exposure to church, hear this with kind of a fresh ear and you can, can you feel this? Like, what is this guy saying? It's so easy to have this kind of like, oh, every, like, how could you not like Jesus? He's such a good guy. But that's why apologetics like McDowell, you know, would say things like, you can't be neutral about Jesus. He's either the Lord, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, right? That's the kind of threefold option he proposes if you take him at his word. Now, of course, Jesus was not actually inviting them to cannibalistic engagements or to blood drinking. He was using a metaphor. But this was disturbing that level of invitation, that level of this powerful sense of you have to take me in in a way that all of a sudden is too much. And it happens. This is the first significant place where the gospel writers record that disciples abandon Jesus. In an understated manner in verse 60, many of the disciples heard this and said, this is a hard teaching. Can we accept this? And many didn't. You know, we're like, bread of life? That sounds so good. Right? How could anybody have a problem with that? But of many of the I am statements, this is actually the one that brought the most initial rejection. Because, you see, Jesus is not just this cosmic vending machine for us. Right? He doesn't want us to just meet the material needs. Right? He's like, don't just come to me when you're short on food or cash, when you lost your keys or had a fight with someone you care about. Don't just come when you're sick, you need a new job, when you really want your team to win. Now, don't hear me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. God cares about the day-to-day parts of our life. Absolutely. That is crystal clear in the scriptures. He cares about our real, tangible, physical needs in the world. And does he provide? Yes. He often abundantly provides, right? That's the story that just happened at the beginning of this chapter. He cares. He provides. But is that the real food and provision that he's talking about when he says, I'm the bread of life? Or asks us to pray for daily bread? And I don't think so. I think while he cares about those things, he's pressing and saying, I want you to think about those next level needs. 
Let those kind of material needs, your hunger and your thirst and the things that return remind you of these deeper needs of your soul. And with those in hand, come to me. And don't just come to me, take me in. Because it is my very presence in you that will nourish and satisfy and will stain your very life for all eternity. And you do need me. I like food all the time. All the time we need to fuel our bodies. And we're reminded that in the same way we need the Lord Jesus every minute of every day of our lives. So he says, come to me. Come to me with every deep desire and longing you have, and I will satisfy. In the story, as many leave Jesus, verse 66, John tells us that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus turns to the twelve. This is a beautiful, I think, vulnerable question. And he asks, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answers him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. They're like, there's nothing else. Is this a hard teaching? Yes. What does it mean to come every day, every moment, and take the Lord in and trust that he can satisfy? It's a hard teaching. It doesn't always feel true in our earthly experience. But Peter says, once we've come to believe and know, where else can we go? I wanted to honor a colleague of mine. I have a picture of, this is an university staff. Her name's Alana, and she's about to conclude her tenure as a missionary on staff with InterVarsity, working with college students and faculty. And I love this picture of Alana. She's holding, you know, um, on the left there, the, the pond dulce, bringing her gifts of hospitality in the Latino community on campus. And um, on the right, you see this picture of her with her arm around a Kareni student from the refugee community in Omaha. And Alana has beautiful gifts for the kingdom. And she loves to look um, to the margins and include people who are often left out in the community of God. And we were celebrating and remembering some stories from her time on staff with InterVarsity. And there's one story in particular that uh, we were holding um, together. And that was a story about a student whose name was Mo, which is short for Muhammad. And Mo had, was a Muslim background student who had come to his university years with a lot of unaddressed trauma and in religious communities, a lot of pain from his family of origin. And Mo was kind of one of those crunchy students. He was drawn to the community, the university group right away, but he was kind of, you know, a little edgy. And he would often like 
um, you know, push the conversation to uncomfortable places. And when we'd go to camp, he'd like sneak off and smoke or like in the Bible studies, he'd, you know, swear occasionally just to see if it would get a rise out of anybody. And, um, but he was pressing this community to be like, are you going to really stay with me? Right? We've probably, some of us are those people. We're like testing. You're going to stick with me. Because Mo knew he had these deep needs and longings that he was looking to be met, and he wanted to be understood. He longed to have his deep questions answered. He wanted to be appreciated, to make people laugh, and he wanted to be accepted. And um, most community, this group on campus, really did so much of that, and I think showed Jesus, but deep down, they really wanted Mo to know Jesus for himself. And there was this moment, there was a night the community was gathered and they were praying. And Mo asked if they would pray for him. And uh, he just started sharing some of those really painful memories in his life with the group. And they led him through a kind of prayer where you, in those memories, as you hold some of those traumatic or painful memories, you ask Jesus, where were you in this moment? And in every single moment of pain, Mo could recognize that Jesus was with him. And he wept, and the community wept with him. And that night, he gave his life to Jesus. The Lord said, come. And he said, I believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And he gave his life to Jesus. And the story is one of many profound transformation moments that Alana got to witness as she served. But this one was special because a year after that moment, Mo was tragically killed in a car accident um, on the interstate. And the community wept and mourned his passing, but they remembered this night. And they remembered that in that moment, that the father had drawn Mo to him and revealed his love, his enoughness, his healing, and that he was enough for every deep longing that Mo had. And so we also gave thanks because an encounter with I am changes everything. And in these weeks, our longing for this community is that we would have fresh encounters with I am. That you would know that he sustains you in all the places of your deep longing and questioning and real needs that God cares about. So, Worship team, you can come on up. Um, each week, we're going to have um, suggest kind of an application or a way to think about this text more deeply using this kind of framework of because of I am, I will. And in this case, as we're considering Jesus as the bread of life and how we will live differently because of who he is, I'm inviting us to consider to live this out. That because Jesus is the bread of life, I will come to him to be satisfied. Because that was the refrain of the text. Did you hear that over and over again? Jesus was like, come to me. The father is the one who helps us come. But all those who come, he will fill and satisfy. And that's John's whole hope in his gospel, right? Is that we believe in this holy one and we'd have life in his name. And so today, think about like, what are those deeper needs and desires you have? And to what or to whom do we sometimes go to meet those 
It's not Jesus. Think for just a moment about that question. What is maybe even just one deep longing you feel below the surface level of the material day-to-day? But what's a deeper longing or desire? A hunger. And with that in mind, I want you to think, what are ways that maybe um, you're tempted to go to something besides Jesus when that kind of flares up in you? And in the space of even response and worship, as we worship God, this could be a great place to come in and to pray, right? To receive communion, to take in the elements as a reminder that you're taking in the presence of Jesus to sustain you. Because when we're hungry, we come to Jesus. When we long for intimacy, friends, we come to Jesus. When our minds are weary or we feel the weakness in our body, we come to Jesus. When we need to be seen and known, when we have a problem that's too big for us, when we long for a life of meaning, Jesus says, come to me. I'm going to satisfy you. Not just for now, but for eternity. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, who are we that you would invite us to come? Wow. But you do. You long for us to believe who you say you are and to entrust our deepest hungers and longings to you to be satisfied. Help us to do that more. And Lord, we pray that even as we pause in the space and we think about you, the great I am, that you would draw us near. Give us courage, bread of life, to come and be satisfied in you.